Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we're going to be talking about the most recent term of the United States Supreme Court. The October 2015 term of the United States Supreme Court came to a close last week with justices tendering decisions touching upon the issues of abortion, affirmative action, Fourth Amendment rights, implied consent laws, amongst many others. There were decisions that had their start here in Georgia and several that will undoubtedly impact what we do in our work and in our day-to-day lives. To help us sort through it all, we've invited back our resident legal expert, Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. Matt Ressing, welcome back to Georgia College Connections. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, Matt, before we begin talking about individual cases, I, I thought if you could briefly tell us your perspective on this most recent term. This was a very unusual term for the U.S. Supreme Court because of the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, basically midterm. And the way the court terms work is they run from October typically to the end of June each year. And it's traditional, or at least in history, it's followed the pattern that some of the most significant cases are left till the end of the term because those cases involve the most discussion and debate by the justices. In fact, we often see very significant opinions being handed down the very last day or the last weeks of the term. And that means that Scalia's death midterm is all the more consequential because some of the more controversial cases, cases where he may have cast a deciding vote, would not have been decided during his life. They would have been decided after his death. And because of that, we uh, had a quite a few split decisions. Uh, that's the other consequence of having eight members of a Supreme Court instead of nine. Nine is somewhat intentional in that we don't have as many split decisions. You get a majority decision. But with eight justices, we have the potential for a 4-4 split, and that actually happened several times this term. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this show, but just very briefly, could you tell us what happens when you have a 4-4 split? Sure. A 4-4 split essentially means no decision. It's almost as if the Supreme Court didn't take the case. So the way Supreme Court cases work is they very often work their way up from a lower court, and they come to the Supreme Court from a federal court of appeals. A 4-4 split means that whatever the Federal Court of Appeals says stands. So the decision of the Federal Appeals Court is affirmed, but because the Supreme Court doesn't weigh in, we don't have any binding precedent at a national level, and we don't have any guidance from the Supreme Court. They simply issue a one-sentence opinion saying this case has been affirmed by an equally divided court. Yes, and of course, uh, like you said, we saw that uh, several times. Well, we do want to jump right into it, sure. and um, if, if you have no further thoughts, I thought we'd start off with a case that is of um, a, a very large constitutional importance, um, and this is one that was addressing the uh, Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And of course, I'm reading that in brief, but if you could introduce to us Utah v. Streif. Sure. 
So the Fourth Amendment is really our constitutional right that protects us against unlawful searches and seizures by police, by law enforcement. But for a long time in America, it was unclear what the consequences were when you were searched illegally. Because I might be searched illegally uh, by law enforcement, but they discover drugs or they discover evidence of a crime. And what happens then? If my constitutional rights mean anything, then I should get some sort of protection. But on the other hand, we now know that I am a criminal. So do we really want to let me go free? In 1961, the Supreme Court addressed this in a case called Map v. Ohio. And the Supreme Court established what has become known as the exclusionary rule. And it's a very strong protection for people who are accused of crimes if their Fourth Amendment rights are violated. It essentially says that evidence obtained as the result of an illegal search of a Fourth Amendment violation cannot be used against you in court. So that evidence is excluded. And if that's all the evidence they have on you, the evidence they obtained by searching you illegally, you will go free. So it's a harsh rule in its application. Someone that we know has committed a crime, or at least we have strong evidence they've committed a crime, we have to let them go. I believe it was Justice Cardozo called this the rule that the criminal shall go free because the constable has blundered. So a very uh, controversial rule. And shortly after Matt v. Ohio, there was another case called Wong Sung v. U.S. And uh, in here, the court established a very creative term for the exclusionary rule. They called it the fruit of the poisonous tree test. And they essentially said that not only the evidence directly obtained as a result of the illegal search is thrown out, but any further evidence that could only have been obtained in a direct line from that illegal search. So this means if I am pulled over without reasonable suspicion, if they search me without probable cause or my permission, and they find evidence of a crime, and that evidence leads to further evidence, maybe that further evidence leads to a confession, but it all works in a direct line from the illegal search. All that evidence is fruit of the poisonous tree and must be thrown out. However, since 1963, the Supreme Court has been chipping away at that rule a bit, and we've moved from a very stark, the evidence must be excluded rule to more of a balancing test where we balance the the needs of the government uh, against the individual's privacy rights. And that's really what leads us in this case of uh, Utah v. Streif. In Utah v. Streif, a officer was watching a house that was suspected of being a, a, a drug operation. And the officer was waiting there all day and saw people coming and going, which seemed a little suspicious, a lot of traffic, but really nothing that would clue this officer into there's definitely criminal activity here. And it seems like the officer you know, essentially just got bored or got frustrated, and the next person that came out of the house The officer walks up to them and stops them and starts asking questions. Now, typically to stop someone on the street and question them to do what we call an investigatory stop, you have to at least have reasonable suspicion. And this officer, the courts found, did not have that reasonable suspicion. So the officer went up to this man, uh, stopped him, and asked him for his ID. And that, the court said, was illegal. The officer wasn't permitted to do it. But having the man's ID, he ran the ID and found that the man had an outstanding warrant for a different crime. And based on that outstanding warrant, the officer arrested the man. And when you arrest someone, then you do have the ability to conduct a search incident to the arrest. So we don't want you carrying drugs or weapons to jail with you. So the police do have a right to search you when you are lawfully arrested. And at that point, they discovered uh, drugs. I believe it was a bag of meth in his pocket. 
So the question becomes, uh, you know, you, the police officer did wrong, should not have stopped the man, should not have asked for the ID without at least reasonable suspicion. But is this a no harm, no foul situation? Well, we caught a crook, and not only someone who was carrying drugs on him, but someone who had an outstanding warrant. Are we going to give the government a pass? The Supreme Court said yes. Five to three, in an opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas, the court applied this balancing test and said, well, the police did something wrong, but it wasn't too bad. And the test that they applied here, or at least the the test that was articulated by Clarence Thomas, I think is a bit troubling for privacy rights advocates. Justice Thomas essentially said, well, uh, this wasn't a very flagrant violation. There's no evidence of systemic or recurrent police misconduct, and therefore, we're not going to exclude the evidence. I think some criminal defense attorneys would find that troubling, that essentially isolated police impropriety is not going to exclude evidence. It seems what we're approaching now is requiring some evidence of systemic, flagrant, intentional violations of rights. And of course, uh, this case has swirled in the public opinion a lot since it was made available to the public. And, um, you know, uh, questions I have just from hearing uh, the synopsis of it are this person was found to have a warrant out for their arrest. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in this case, I believe it was a traffic warrant. So I don't know what exactly the infraction was, but we're not Mm -hmm. talking, you know, an imminent danger to the public. Right. Um, do you think perhaps that degree to which the infraction for the warrant was plays at all into this or not? I mean, in my opinion, it sound like, no, it doesn't matter what the warrant was for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that would give them the ability to win this balancing test. You have to look at it when you look at the totality of the circumstances here. From a legal standpoint, If you legally determine someone has an outstanding warrant and you can arrest them, then it doesn't matter what that warrant is for, whether it's a traffic violation or if they're, you know, wanted for murder, you still have the right to arrest them. In fact, the obligation to arrest them and you have the right and obligation to conduct a search. But the question now is, if we allow this to happen, if the Supreme Court follows down this road and we say anytime an individual police officer stops someone and runs an ID... As long as we don't have any proof that this is part of some sort of systemic policy by police, then it's okay. And knowing that even traffic violations could then trigger a search, are we really giving carte blanche to law enforcement to stop people and essentially search them? And that's what several of the dissenters said. So we had three dissenters on the court Justice Kagan wrote a dissent, Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissent, and Justice Ginsburg joined on to each of those dissents in various ways. Justice Kagan said this Supreme Court ruling essentially invites police misconduct. If if our test is really that you have to show systemic police misconduct, as long as they're careful about it, we're really never going to catch them at it. We're not going to meet that standard. Well, I'd even go further to ask, uh, what happens if systemic police misconduct is found at a later time within that law enforcement agency? Could this set up a situation in which we have a, a large problem retroactively when these abilities, granted in some case, mm-hmm. make them feel uh, full of themselves and they go further and something starts to become systemic or the evidence of something that was not prior to 
um, be seen as uh, systemic is now known to become systemic. Mm -hmm. Well, sure, that could be an issue. We could be looking back at some prior decisions, knowing more things in the future. And do we have that sort of scrutiny of police departments at a systemic level? One thing that Sotomayor brought up in her dissent was uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and was talking about the significant percentages of particularly uh, non-white citizens of Ferguson who might have outstanding warrants. And part of what the Justice Department determined when they really did that deep dive and investigation into Ferguson is they did see some systemic problems with citations being issued that you know, perhaps should not have been issued or citations being issued disproportionately to people of color. So we don't often get that sort of look in the police department. Ferguson was uh, you know, set off by particular uh, events that, that led, snowballed into a Justice Department investigation. That doesn't happen too often. So where are we supposed to collect this information about systemic police misconduct? And Justice Sotomayor really, in, in what became somewhat of a controversial manner, brought race into this, as Justice Sotomayor is known to do. Uh, he's famous for saying race matters and has a very poetic uh, dissent. Uh, talks about the people who are targeted by the police, particularly uh, people of color routinely targeted by the police, called them the canaries in the coal mine, whose deaths, civil and literal, warn us that no one can breathe in this atmosphere. And her warning here really evokes some of the things we've been hearing from the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, and I've actually um, pulled some of the conclusion of her dissent. And, of course, you just went and quoted from it there. But I'll just add to what the final line of, of that one is. She's talking about the canaries in the coal mine and um, that no one can breathe in that atmosphere. And she goes on to say, they are the ones who recognize that unlawful police stops corrode all our civil liberties and threaten all our lives. And this is the part I like. Until their voices matter too, our justice system will continue to be anything but. And it seemed like there are a few cases that touched upon these issues of equity mm-hmm. in this term. But... It's time for us to take a break. Okay. And so uh, we will take that opportunity right now. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Matt Ressing. He's a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College Business here at Georgia College. He's joining us for a look back at this most recent term of the United States Supreme Court. We have a lot more to talk about, so I hope you'll join us when we return from this short break on Georgia College Connections. Thank you. 
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're delving into the most recent term of the United States Supreme Court. In the studio with me now is Matt Ressing. He is a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business. In that last segment, we were talking just about uh, just a general overview of the last term and then one of the cases that looked at a major constitutional issue, and that was Utah v. Streif addressing parts of the Fourth Amendment against uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. Now, in this next segment, I thought as we were going out there, we were talking about some of the ways in which the Supreme Court uh, touched upon inequality and inequities in the system. And uh, another one of the cases that they looked at also very much centered around race Mm -hmm. and inequities based on race uh, within the judicial system. And this one also originated out of Rome, Georgia. So I thought we'd look at that one next. Mm -hmm. And that's Foster v. Chapman. Well, let me give you a little background because this case involves something that many non-lawyers might not know about. It's an issue of jury selection. When you choose a jury for a criminal case or a civil case, you start with a very large jury pool. So a lot of people get those notices saying you've been called for jury duty. You come in and you sit there. You might be with 100 people. And they'll call you up in small groups, and the lawyers will ask you questions. And by asking these questions in this process called voir dire, they are trying to winnow that large jury pool down to the final uh, members of the jury. And there's a couple different ways that the lawyers can exclude jurors that they don't want on that jury. The simplest way is if the jurors show evidence of bias. So they'll ask you a question, you know, do you know the defendant? Uh, Yes, he's my brother. Okay, well, you probably will have some bias uh, towards your brother, so we can strike you. You Quote, unquote, a, a juror strike is when we eliminate a juror from the jury pool. And when the juror shows evidence of bias, that's not very controversial. The judge will allow the lawyer to strike that juror. You can do that as many times as you want. What's much more controversial is is something called peremptory strikes. And each lawyer has a certain number of strikes that they can use for any reason whatsoever. And they don't even have to explain it. And these are often negotiated in advance, but typically it's about seven strikes you can use. So... Uh, In the questioning, I just get a bad feeling from one juror. I don't think he's going to find for my client. I think he's going to be against me. And I say, I'd like to use my peremptory strike against this juror. And I don't have to give any reason why. The trouble with this, or one of the problems with this, is that it was suspected that lawyers were using it as a way of getting a jury of a certain race. So to exclude black jurors or to exclude white jurors, to exclude jurors of a certain racial background, particularly in cases that were racially charged, where we might think, look, uh, I have a you know African-American defendant in this case, in a criminal case, and maybe I assume, rightly or wrongly, that African-American jurors are more likely to be sympathetic. So as a prosecutor, I might want to use my peremptory strikes. I want an all-white jury in order to convict this defendant. In 1986, the Supreme Court addressed this in a case called Batson v. Kentucky, and they said, okay, you cannot use your peremptory strikes to eliminate jurors that belong to a protected class, and the protected classes under the 14th Amendment are race, religion, and national origin. So if you are using your peremptory strikes to get an all-white jury or an all-black jury or a jury of a certain race, uh, that's wrong. You can't do it. It's illegal. Of course, it's tricky because you don't have to explain why you're using your peremptory strikes. So it's very difficult to catch someone at it. 
Well, and I have a question here. Now, are these strikes, and specifically these, these preemptory strikes, able to be challenged? Uh, no. Uh, until Batson, there was no ability to challenge it. Now, is that a gentleman's agreement um, or a professional um, mm-hmm. agreement between the lawyers, or is that actually also based in law? It's based in law. It's a procedural law. Now, the the lawyers will often have a agreement ahead of time or a negotiation as to exactly how many peremptory strikes they will use, but those peremptory strikes will be upheld as a matter of procedural law. And until Batson, there was no challenge to it. Now, what Batson said is that you can make a challenge, which has now become known as a Batson challenge, but you have to be able to show, you know, by convincing evidence that the strikes were being made with race in mind. And that's almost impossible to do until this case of Foster v. Chapman. That's probably what's so remarkable about this case is that this is a case where a prosecutor was caught more or less red-handed. And this was a case here in Georgia. This is a case that is very long in the making. I think the the actual trial, initial trial, was shortly after Batson, uh, maybe in, in the late 1980s, only now getting to a result. So it involved a uh, black man from Rome, Georgia, who was accused of killing a white woman, uh, was put on trial, I think, around 1987. The prosecutor used his peremptory strikes, and they ended up with an all-white jury who uh, then convicted this man, and he was put on death row. He was also given the death penalty. Of course, that, that triggers a long process of appeals, so that's why we're still dealing with this case now, almost 30 years since uh, the conviction. And just now, the Supreme Court overturned, or at least cast doubt on uh, the jury's verdict because they found that the prosecutor improperly used his peremptory strikes on the basis of race. Now, the Supreme Court decided the seven to one. This wasn't very controversial. And really, the reason is because of the evidence that came out. The defense attorneys uh, for the the accused were able to get a copy of the prosecutor's uh, notes from the jury selection 30 years ago. And this prosecutor had actually labeled the jurors by race on his notes. So uh, black jurors were marked with a B. And there were also some other notes that were you know, particularly revealing, saying things like, well, if we have to take one of them, you know, implying the black jurors, let's make it this one. And in the end, all the, black, the potential black jurors were struck from the jury. So it's very rare we have that type of evidence. And even having it, even with all of that evidence, I believe that Georgia's Supreme Court had, uh, had upheld uh, this. It wasn't until it was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court that it was struck down. So it kind of shows you just the depth of problems we have trying to address racial discrimination, even after Batson. And to kind of go back to a little bit of uh, an earlier part of our conversation, now, do we know whether or not this is similar to, um, the? and I'm using this incorrectly, I know, but I'd like to, to say it, uh, the fruit of the poisonous tree. Is this person's conviction going to be thrown out mm-hmm. um, because of this case? Right. Well, it's it's a bit of an open question. Uh, the the simplest answer is is probably because the Supreme Court, in finding that the jury selection was improper, the remedy would typically be a new trial. So go back and and do it again. Of course, it, it, prosecutors do have discretion. They would have to decide whether they want to try it again. He doesn't get to go free. It's not like a fruit of the poisonous tree case where we say, okay, there's no evidence against you. You're free to go. Uh, the, they could retry him. They could start it all over again. 
and and uh, with a new jury, they might still convict him. They might still give him the death penalty, and we end up, you know, with another thirty-year appeals process. What's interesting about this case is two of the justices, uh, Alito and Thomas. So Justice uh, Thomas was the single dissent in this case. Uh, he agreed with the Georgia Supreme Court that this was not a constitutional violation. He was the only one. Uh, Justice Alito joined with the majority. But both of them suggested in their opinions in ways that when it goes back to the Georgia Supreme Court, maybe we don't have to retry the guy. Maybe there are some procedural mistakes he made that would allow the Georgia Supreme Court to uphold this conviction. Uh, uh, very strange, uh, you know, a little outside the scope of what the Supreme Court was asked to do. And you know, I think they're trying to address this idea that, you know, even they might suspect that even— uh, with the uh, improprieties in jury selection, this guy still was a criminal. Here's some ways you can keep him in jail. So very, very odd suggestions uh, by Alito and Thomas about arguments the lawyers might make when this goes back to the Georgia Supreme Court. Well, and to go back to another bedrock of our conversations about the Supreme Court, is there any wider ramifications of this? In that, you know, you said that it's a very unusual case. It probably won't affect the practice of preemptory strikes because the evidence was so unusual. Mm -hmm. And really, I, I read from that, and of course, we've had conversations about this beforehand, mm -hmm. but um, really, this is a lesson to lawyers and mm -hmm. prosecutors specifically. Don't leave uh, notes <laughs> of this nature within your notes mm -hmm. uh, for this case. Sure. Uh, so does it do anything for other cases going further, or is it just further... Um, you know, clarify Batson v. Kentucky. Yeah, I don't think it does much. And you're right. This was a case of a smoking gun and a prosecutor doing something that even at the time, you know, most lawyers would probably say, you know, you shouldn't have written that down. And certainly now that we've all read about this case, a prosecutor would be foolish to do something like that. Does it really, you know, change things? Probably not. I think it just really illustrates for many lawyers uh, some of the the you know, the problems that some people see with peremptory strikes. And this is this controversy is nothing new. Uh, you know, there have been lawyers and academics arguing for years that peremptory strikes should be, uh, you know, we should get rid of them because they can be abused. Uh, and I think this, this case shows you that when abuse occurs, and it doesn't always occur, but when it does occur, it is incredibly hard to catch. Uh, and that may be a strong argument for eliminating peremptory strikes. We'll have to have you back on for another show about that <laughs> sure. at another time. But at this time, we are out of uh, time for this segment, so we're going to take another short break. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections. And in this episode, we're talking about the most recent term or the decisions of the most recent term of the United States Supreme Court. My guest is Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business here on the campus of Georgia College. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today I'm joined by Jay Whitney Bunting College of Business Professor of Business Law and Ethics, Matt Resting, who's here to talk with us about the most recent term of the United States Supreme Court. Now, in the last two segments, we've talked about these broader topics of inequity and discrimination within some of the cases that were decided during this term of the Supreme Court. And from our last one, I'd like to actually kind of change the tables around a little bit and talk about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And I think this one is especially applicable for us as we are here on a um, college campus. It is Fisher v. University of Texas, and it's about the ways that they've imbued their admissions process with some deference based on race. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, this is a, a long case that's been going on for about eight years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matt, if our audience members haven't heard about it, please introduce us to it. Sure. So Fisher versus University of Texas is the case of a white woman who applied to University of Texas at Austin and was rejected. She alleged that there were students of color who had lower GPAs, lower SAT scores that were admitted ahead of her. And she said that that is racial discrimination. And the college essentially responded, yes, it is racial discrimination, but it is permissible racial discrimination. So uh, maybe I'll talk a minute about affirmative action. Affirmative action is a form of, uh, of racial discrimination, intentional racial discrimination, that if done in certain ways has been found to be constitutional. So we've been talking in our last few segments about cases where racial discrimination was alleged or maybe even proven. And, you know, we tend to think of racial discrimination as per se illegal, but it's not necessarily true. Uh, Under the 14th Amendment, we're supposed to treat everyone equally with equal protection, and that includes treating people of different races equally. But it doesn't mean that racial discrimination is automatically unconstitutional. All it means is the government has a very, very difficult burden to bear in showing that this racial discrimination is constitutional. We call it strict scrutiny, the test of strict scrutiny. So if I am intentionally discriminating on the basis of race, I have to prove that my discrimination was narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling purpose. And if I can do that, then it's not unconstitutional. So affirmative action is one of those very rare cases where the Supreme Court has found that intentional racial discrimination might be constitutional. But there are certain parameters. You can't have racial quotas, for example. And of course, you have to show that there is a compelling reason for doing it and that the way you're doing it is narrowly tailored to achieving that purpose. So that's what we're really talking about here with the University of Texas. This case has been bouncing around for quite some time. Abigail Fisher, who applied to the University of Texas, she has now graduated from another institution. This is really a case about principle. It's not about Ms. Fisher getting to go to to Austin. It's really a case about affirmative action in general. And when this case was first brought, it was really backed up by a lot of uh, conservative groups. Fisher's not paying her own way to the Supreme Court. Uh, She's being supported by a lot of groups that essentially want to see the end of affirmative action. It's not the first time this case has come before the Supreme Court. I believe it was about three years ago this case first came to the Supreme Court, but they kicked it back down to a lower court. Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion, and he said, we're not sure about what Texas is doing here. I'm not convinced 
that what they're doing is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling purpose. So I want to send this back to the lower courts, make sure they're applying strict scrutiny. And, you know, arguably, they didn't really do much different before it came back up here. So the lower court said, yep, they're doing it. It's strict scrutiny. Everything's okay. And this time, the Supreme Court gave them a pass. This time, Kennedy voted for a, a split court, 4-3, so a bare majority, and upheld what, what the University of Texas was doing. And so you said that Kennedy had written the um, majority opinion of the last one, which remanded it back to the lower courts. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he came and he wrote the majority opinion on this one as well. Right. And now, from my reading of some of the notes about it, he had come about with some kind of test mm -hmm. in order to see if it was uh, narrowly focused enough. Mm -hmm. uh, are, are you able to give any insights into a little bit more about what the different parts of this test that would allow you to know um, whether or not what your individual institution is doing um, cuts the mustard, mm -hmm. shall we say? And, and I use the word your individual institution because I understand that um, there are no broad rules about this. Mm -hmm. It is always going to be, as they say, uh, sui generis. Uh, yeah, sui generis, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> so no, I can't really give you much uh, indication. And that's, that's one reason that a lot of schools were watching this case. One thing it, it could have, it was, it was an outside chance, but it could have spelled the demise of affirmative action uh, and its legality. But even if it was upheld, a lot of schools were looking for some guidance. Well, you know, what's okay? What do we have to prove? What's the test? We haven't really learned much more about this. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that University of Texas's program is, is really unique and unusual. Years ago, before affirmative action was really you know, solidly upheld by the Supreme Court, at a time where it was really questionable whether you could do this at all, the University of Texas adopted a way of doing affirmative action without explicitly doing it. They called it the top 10% rule. And they said, okay, we want a more racially diverse class. We don't think we can explicitly prefer people that are not white. So what we'll do is we'll say, of all the high schools in Texas, we will take the top 10% of their graduating class and give them admission to University of Texas at Austin. And because a lot of the high schools in Texas were historically segregated and still somewhat de facto segregated, that meant that by taking the top percent, we, they were ending up with a pretty racially diverse class. That's fine. That's constitutional. That is not, uh, you know, explicitly making decisions on the basis of race. And that's why they did it. It was essentially a, uh, you know, Supreme Court proof way of doing affirmative action before the Supreme Court became a little friendlier to explicit affirmative action. Now, once the Supreme Court uh, in cases after that indicated that we're okay with affirmative action, Texas said, oh, okay. Well, in that case, we haven't quite filled our class with this top 10%. There's still a group of students that get admitted through the normal admissions process, we're going to apply affirmative action to that process as well. And we can't use quotas. We can't assign points for uh, extra points for non-white students. But we can use race as one of these factors that we consider, use it in a holistic way. And that's what Fisher was saying. She said, I didn't get in under the top 10% rule. I was in the smaller pool of students that had to go through the regular admission process. And they still discriminated against me because I was white and they preferred students who, who were non-white. And the school said, yes, that's true. But we have an interest in creating a racially diverse class. 
Kennedy really didn't give us a lot in saying, you know, why this was upheld or, or what they did that allowed it versus what other schools might do that might not be allowed. He really gave a lot of deference in a way that a lot of people were, were critical of. Because when he sent it back down three years ago, uh, I think a lot of people read that as that when it came back before the court, the court was going to say, well, you better have shown us something new. You better have really explained the, you know, the necessity of applying affirmative action. And you know, arguably, they didn't do that. They really just kind of sent it back up again, said, yeah, we checked everything. Everything's fine. Uh, you know, we did everything correctly. And this time, Kennedy gave him a pass. This is a complicated case, and, and, but I do want to talk a little bit about what I think happened because it really hits home the impact that the loss of Scalia has had on this court. This was a case that three years ago only had eight justices. So back when Scalia was alive, there were nine justices on the Supreme Court, but Fisher won, the original case, was only decided by eight justices. And that's because Justice Elena Kagan uh, had to recuse herself or chose to recuse herself because she, before being on the Supreme Court, was the Solicitor General of the United States, which means she argued Supreme Court cases on behalf of the United States. So she had actually argued uh, part of this case in lower courts before she served on the Supreme Court, and therefore she stepped out. So what I speculate happened is that when Fisher One came before the Supreme Court with Scalia on there and Kagan off, we had a split vote. Or when they, you know, when they talked about it, uh, Kennedy was probably leaning in favor of upholding this affirmative action policy, along with the three more liberal justices, which would be Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer. The four more conservative justices, Escalia, Alito, Thomas, and Robert. Chief Justice Roberts, would have voted to strike this down. But they didn't want a 4-4 split. They really don't like to do that. So Kennedy said, well... What if we send this back and get some more information? And everyone agreed with that. They essentially punted it. They kicked the can down the road a little bit. Now, when it came back before the court, Scalia is, is off the court. And this time, you know, the, a lot of people think that Kennedy switched sides. But my speculation is that he was probably on the side of approving it back then. But they didn't want a 4-4 split. So his views probably haven't changed too much in, in the meantime. What really changed is the death of Scalia. I want to go further on those absences on the court back when it was first tried in this time. But again, we're out of time for this segment, so we're going to take a short break. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. And on this episode, we're talking about the decisions resulting from the last term of the United States Supreme Court. My guest is Matt Ressing, a business law and ethics professor at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business here at Georgia College. We'll be right back with more on Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. As we sometimes do, we're going back and we're looking at the cases that were um, argued before the Supreme Court during this last session. Uh, my guest for each of these conversations is Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. Now, as we left off in that last segment, we were talking about the absence of um, Supreme Court Justice Scalia and how that has had um, a stark effect on this term. And, you know, we talked about that last case in which it was decided by a 4-3 split, which is unusual. Um, in that situation, there was actually another justice who recused herself, uh, Supreme Court Justice Kagan, uh, from that case because she had argued parts of it earlier at a different level of the court system. But the other results are a number of ties that have come out. We're going to take a brief look at some of these ties and the effect or lack of effect that they had. We'd come up with a short list, um, and I'll let you start off with, with some of those. Sure. Well, the Supreme Court really does not like to tie. Uh, as we mentioned, it's intentional that there are an odd number of justices so that we don't have ties. It does happen occasionally, uh, often when we have a recusal, uh, but they don't like to do it because it leaves things in turmoil. It means that the lower court's ruling stands, but we have no nationwide precedent. And the Supreme Court doesn't have to take all cases that, that they're asked to take. They typically only take a case because they say this is a case where we need to establish a nationwide precedent. So I mentioned my speculation that Fisher versus University of Texas, the first time that came before the court, it may have been headed for a tie, and instead they decided to send it back uh, with, with some questions. I think that's something that we saw uh, this term in the case of Zubik v. Burwell. So this was an Affordable Care Act case, an Obamacare case involving the contraceptive mandate, uh, as, it's, as it's known. This is part of the Affordable Care Act said that employers have to provide a certain package of women's health care options to their female employees at no cost to the employees. So make sure when you're getting a plan from an insurance company that it has this package of women's health care options. In fact, we're going to require the insurance companies to offer this at no cost. Now, several institutions objected to this on the basis of religious objections. They said, well, you know, we don't believe in contraceptives or we don't believe in certain uh, contraceptives that are on this list. Therefore, we will not play any role in providing this to our female employees. Some uh, organizations, such as churches, were exempted from the rule. But we had other ones who were not exempted but because they weren't churches, but they were nonprofits, you know, religious hospitals or, or, or other nonprofits. And the Obama administration said, well, okay, we won't force you to, to provide this to your female employees. What we'll just have you do is file something with us saying you have a religious objection, and we'll note that, and then we'll get your insurance company to provide it to your female employees. So we'll essentially cut you out of the loop. But what these nonprofits said is even the act of filing a notice to you, just letting you know we want to opt out of this rule, is in a way us providing these contraceptives because we're telling you to tell our insurance company to provide the contraceptives. And even that violates our religious convictions. That was the case that went before the Supreme Court. And this was a tough one. This was one where we have very much an ideological split uh, on the court. And uh, you know we have got religious freedom, we've got Obamacare, it's a very hot button issue. 
And with Scalia on the court, I think the religious institutions may have won this. And I think, in fact, they, the this case was pushed before the Supreme Court at this time, specifically because the people advancing it thought that with Scalia they would get a victory. What no one expected is that Scalia would die before this case was determined. And I think with Scalia's death, it was headed for a 4-4 split. So what the Supreme Court, that's my speculation, of course. We don't know the discussions Supreme Court justices have uh, before they issue opinions. But what they did is they voted unanimously to basically send it back. So again, you know, very similar to what happened with uh, Fisher versus University of Texas three years ago. The court said, well, maybe we don't have to decide this right now. And kind of an odd opinion, uh, you know, the eight justices of the Supreme Court unanimously said, well, maybe you can all work this out. Maybe we don't have to decide this. Uh, it seems like maybe we can figure, you know, if government can figure out a way to, to provide this health care to women and, and they don't have to file the thing. Uh, so go figure it out. And, and if you can't figure it out, we'll deal with it later. So a big punt by the Supreme Court on a tough issue. And uh, very recently in the press, we heard, well, not a punt, but obviously something that didn't go in the president's case, which is U.S. v. Texas. Mm -hmm. And this is about uh, the executive order to uh, provide some kind of a, a shield or leniency mm -hmm. uh, for some immigrants who you know, were, were facing deportation. Sure. So this was an executive order that was called DAPA, was the uh, acronym, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and People of Lawful Status. And it basically said, look, we've got all these people here in the country that are uh, undocumented immigrants that uh, would normally be scheduled for deportation, but they are parents of people who are here lawfully this is going to cause a lot of problems, you know, for the families and also administratively to deport uh, these people. Maybe we can at least defer their deportation. And it's and so it's essentially the the uh, Obama administration saying, look, we are required to execute the laws of the United States. Part of that includes deporting people who are here illegally or who are undocumented immigrants. But as an executive agency, we could decide what to prioritize. We can't, you know, enforce every law. We don't have the uh, resources for that. So we'll choose that this is a low priority. And we'll basically, you know, choose that these certain immigrants we're not going to go after. But they even went a little bit beyond that. This isn't really the same as, as say, uh, marijuana laws, where recently the federal government has said that's a low priority for enforcement. They actually set up a regime under this executive order by which people would apply for DAPA status and therefore get, you know, essentially three years of potentially renewable deferred deportation. So give them a quasi-legal status here in America, at least temporarily. This was very controversial. It was challenged by a lot of groups. And the lower court, the Fifth Circuit, had issued a preliminary injunction stopping this order from going into effect. That doesn't mean it's killed it just means that we think that the people challenging this law might win. They have a good possibility of success. So uh, we're going to say that while this case is pending trial, the executive order has to stop. The Fifth Circuit had upheld that. The Supreme Court split on this 4-4. What that means is we have no guidance from the Supreme Court whether this is you know this executive order was constitutional or not. We have no nationwide precedent 
But effectively, it means that DAPA will not go into effect, at least not now. It will continue to work its way through the trial process and eventually will probably come back before the Supreme Court in a year or two. Now, is this one of those where it, again, creates at least temporarily a patchwork um, in which these similar cases in other districts uh, throughout the country will continue operating the way that they're operating and this district will not? You know, I, I, that's a question I had in my mind, and I'm not sure. I think that, uh, that technically that's true, but the, uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement has basically said that DAPA is on hold uh, while this works its way through the courts. So it, they, it may be true that, uh, you know, technically speaking, this only applied in the Fifth Circuit, but because of patchwork would really not make much sense for this. The Obama administration has said, okay, you know, it's all on hold. Uh, DAPA is on hold. We're not accepting applications. Let's see how this pans out with the Supreme Court. Or, you know, President Obama also said Congress should act to do something. If you're not, if, if I can't do this, Congress, it's your turn. In other words, we're going to be in limbo on this case. Uh, for those people who are involved in it, uh, the legal questions that are there, uh, just a lot of people in limbo on this. It is in limbo. I mean, well, no more in limbo than they were before DAPA uh, was issued. Uh, but now with the possibility of something like DAPA happening in the future or a congressional fix that may involve some elements of DAPA, but for now, uh, you know, we do not have DAPA. It's, it's on hold. Well, it's happened again. We've come to the end of this segment, um, but we've got more. There's always more. And a lot of it's going to take place in the state of Texas, the great state of Texas, um, when we return for Georgia College Connections. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Matt Ressing. He's a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business here at Georgia College. And we're talking about the decisions from the most recent United States Supreme Court term. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. We're continuing with our conversation about the latest term of the United States Supreme Court with business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing. Now, as I jokingly said in our on our breakout for the last segment, we're going to stay within the state of Texas now, but we are leaving the 
tied cases that were decided upon by the Supreme Court this last session. Uh, now, we wanted to go to a, another case that originated in Texas and has um, just very large implications for the issue of abortion. And this is Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt. This took place in Texas, but had uh, widespread ramifications that will spill out into all of the other states. This was a very big case, and I mentioned before that often some of the most controversial cases go right down to the last day of the term or the last week of the term, and this was probably the bombshell that the court dropped uh, just before it finished its term. This involved a law in Texas, but there are similar laws in other states. Two things. First of all, doctors performing abortions need to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. So certain doctors uh, have a, a certification or a qualification. They're allowed to admit patients to a hospital, and other, and other doctors do not. They said if you want to perform abortion services, you have to be able to admit your patients to a nearby hospital. That's number one. The second one is that any clinic that performs abortions need to have equivalent equipment and you know structure of outpatient surgical centers. So if you're performing abortions in your clinic, your clinic needs to look like an outpatient surgical center, which is more requirements than a lot of clinics were currently required to have. So proponents of this Texas law said this is essential for women's safety. We are trying to protect women. Uh, we don't want women who are having an abortion to have some complication and have a barrier to be admitted to the hospital. Uh, we want to make sure that the places where this is happening is very highly regulated, the equivalent of other surgical procedures. People who were opposed to this law said that that's just a smokescreen. What you're trying to do is essentially outlaw abortion without outlawing abortion. This is an end run around Roe v. Wade. You're putting up these barriers that are not necessary for women's health and, in fact, may be detrimental to women's health. And I had heard recently that there's laws like this that are at least either on the books or in the process of being written that look at and nibble away from different parts of the abortion procedure, and they're calling them targeted regulations of the abortion procedure. And so they're looking at just different parts of the actual procedure of abortion and trying to make them either uh, much more difficult to do within that state or outlaw them outright. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons why this is a problem is because it's putting an undue burden on mm -hmm. uh, what is an otherwise legal procedure. Mm -hmm. So just like with some of our prior cases, we, when we're looking at Supreme Court decisions, we always have to look back to the precedent. So the way law works in America is judicial opinions are built upon the opinions of the past. This is a conversation we've been having about constitutional rights and federal law for hundreds of years. And Supreme Court justices don't just decide a case you know, based on a whim. They apply prior rulings. So one of the most important precedents, of course, is Roe v. Wade, uh, the 1970s case where the Supreme Court said that women have a right to an abortion. They, they found that this was one of the privacy rights implied by the Constitution. So Roe v. Wade established a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy, so a state can't prevent a woman from having uh, access to abortion, but it didn't really give us the whole picture. And then later on, we had another precedential case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And this, you can see, is chipping away at Roe v. Wade or, or maybe just clarifying it. It said states can regulate abortion. 
So a state could put certain regulations on abortion that might be seen as imposing burdens on access, but those regulations cannot impose an undue burden on access. So you can regulate abortion as a state, but once your regulations impose an undue burden, those are the magic words, on access to abortion, uh, that is unconstitutional. It's a violation of Roe v. Wade. So the big question here is Texas's rules, which it claims to be for women's health purposes, opponents claim to just be trying to eliminate abortion. Do those rules impose an undue burden? And the Supreme Court decided five to three that yes, they do. That together and individually, those two restrictions that Texas was placing on abortion imposed an undue burden and therefore were unconstitutional. Now, is it possible for you to give us a little bit of insight into the decisions or the opinions that were cast down and how they came to their opinion that it was, in fact, an undue burden? Sure. Well, I think part of what was persuasive is some statistics or some evidence that was proposed by the people fighting against this Texas law. They said, well, let's look at how many abortion clinics there are in Texas, and let's look at how many would survive if these rules were imposed. And I think they managed to convince a majority of the court that this would really have a, a huge uh, detrimental effect on abortion providers. And I, I think it was something like now there are you know, 40 uh, abortion clinics in Texas, and this would make lead to 10. So we're going to lose three quarters of the providers in the state. I think they managed to convince the court not only were the costs of these measures extreme and will put most abortion providers out of business, but they also managed through you know, scientific data and, and testimony to convince a majority of the Supreme Court that they were unnecessary for women's health. And I think they did convince at least five justices that what Texas was doing was essentially a pretense. Uh, of course, three justices uh, you know, dissented from this case. They would have upheld Texas's laws and felt that these were a legitimate exercises of the state's right uh, and duty to protect its citizens. In the uh, broader conversations in the wake of this decision, I've heard in other areas of the media uh, that there was a you know, comparison of the restrictions that were put on um, the abortion procedures in the state of Texas versus the regulations concerning other procedures. Mm -hmm. um, did that, to your knowledge, play any role in you know, the way that they made these decisions? I think those were arguments made on both sides of the case. I, I don't know if I can recall specific examples, but certainly the lawyers arguing for Texas would have uh, said, look, here are other uh, procedures that we feel are equally invasive, equally serious, and we require those to be done in an outpatient surgical center. And we require, you know, the hallways to be this wide. We require that you have this certain amount of equipment. Why would we not apply that to abortion? And then, of course, the people on the other side of the issue fighting the Texas law would come up with examples. Well, no, abortion is more like this other procedure that does not require an outpatient facility. It's, it's, it's much less invasive. It's much less risks of complications. And that's going to be a bit of a he said, she said, like in any uh, case, and we're going to have competing expert opinions as well. All right. And as we go forward, um, does this set enough of a precedent that uh, we won't be seeing more cases about abortion coming to the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. Does this really decide anything? It decides something, but it's certainly not the end of this debate. So what we know now 
is that a law like Texas's law, uh, with either one of these uh, factors that Texas had, uh, that's unconstitutional. So any state that currently has an identical restriction, that's out the window. Now, the tougher question is, what if a state has a different regulation of abortion, or what if Texas goes back and says, okay, we're not going to do these two things, but they come up with some new law that uh, arguably restricts access to abortion in a different way? That might be constitutional. We don't know until it gets to the Supreme Court. What this really does is it puts a shade on the argument. It means that this Supreme Court, at least by a, you know, a slight majority, five to three, is uh, looking at these sort of regulations with, with a lot of scrutiny. It's going to embolden reproductive rights advocates to bring more cases challenging maybe uh, uh, regulations at the margins. It's going to make groups that prefer more restrictions a little more reticent about taking it to the Supreme Court, at least until we see who the next Supreme Court justice is or who the next uh, several Supreme Court justices. It gives a sense to lawyers and to lobbyists and activists on both sides as to where the Supreme Court is leaning right now. And that's going to affect the type of cases that are brought before it. In other words, defining the margins. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to do it again. We're going to take another short break. If you're just joining us, we're continuing to talk about the decisions that came out of the last term of the United States Supreme Court with Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. So stick around and we'll be back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you're just joining us, we're having a fascinating conversation about the decisions that came out of the most recent term of the United States Supreme Court. My guest is Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business here at Georgia College. In this last segment, we wanted to look at a few of the I'm just going to say stranger cases that the Supreme Court uh, took up. Um, you know, of course, they're able to, um, I guess, grant cert mm-hmm. to whichever cases they want. And sometimes you wonder if they have a little bit of sense of humor up there in the uh, highest court in the land. We want to look at a case that took place on the lakes of North Dakota. And this is Birchfield versus North Dakota. Uh, Matt, could you set this one up for us? Sure. 
So this is a case where we're going to talk about some of the details of this case, maybe maybe somewhat amusing or at least a little odd, but I don't want to uh, downplay the importance of this issue. This is an issue of, uh, of drunk driving or, or driving under the influence or boating under the influence. Uh, and this was not a controversial case. It was, in fact, a 7-1 case. But the details are, are pretty interesting. What this case deals with is the practice that most states, if not all states, have of when you get your driver's license to receive it, you're required to sign a statement that you will uh, submit to a, a BAC testing, a blood alcohol content testing, uh, if you're pulled over by an officer. So you're essentially agreeing before you even get your license to drive that if an officer wants you to take a breathalyzer test or maybe in some states even a blood draw uh, test, that you will do it. And that means that in the heat of the moment, you can't refuse. Or if you do refuse, you'll get slapped with penalties. Uh, often they are criminal penalties and they are at least as significant as if you had uh, you know, blown uh, over the limit and been arrested. And this is a tool for law enforcement. It's because uh, often... Uh, people don't want to consent to a breathalyzer or a blood test when they're suspected of drunk driving. And to make things a little bit easier on law enforcement, rather than having to go through the process of getting a warrant or find some other legal justification to do it, they can just read you a statement saying, well, you already agreed when you got your driver's license that you would do this. It's called an implied consent law. So if you refuse, I'm going to arrest you for refusal to take the test. And often that will persuade people to take the test. And if they don't, you've got something to charge them for. This has come under fire, though, and you know and it does sound a little strange. You're telling me that uh, you know by by refusing to submit to a search, I am committing a crime. Doesn't that implicate my Fourth Amendment rights? So this went up to the uh, Supreme Court, and what the Supreme Court decided, you know, in a in a not a close case at all, but seven to one, uh, they found that. Implied consent laws are okay, uh, at least for breathalyzers. They were much more suspicious about doing blood draws uh, based on implied consent. So maybe we'll allow you to indicate ahead of time that you're willing to blow into a tube. But uh, when it comes to actually sticking a needle in your arm and drawing blood, uh, we're going to require police to uh, at least uh, you know, get a warrant or fit under one of these other warrant exceptions that have been traditionally upheld. Now, I do want to fill in some of the details of for how this applies to the state of Georgia. Of course, Georgia itself does have an implied consent law. Mm-hmm. And so that if you do refuse the breathalyzer, I believe the penalty is a, a year of a, a suspended license. Of course, you will spend the night in jail as well. But um, to go beyond this, there are several counties that have a practice of, of getting those warrants for a blood test if you refuse uh, the breathalyzer. And those actually, those counties are Cobb, Paulding, Cherokee, Douglas, and now more recently, Houston County has actually uh, begun the practice of getting a warrant um, for the blood test. And and there's been uh, many twists and turns in in the legality of that here. Um, I know that one of the uh, Metro Atlanta hospital systems, as a hospital system, uh, saying that no consent must be granted for the blood test, uh, regardless of what the laws are in that county, whether or not you have a warrant. If they're in this healthcare setting, they're not going to draw blood without consent. Now, even though the Supreme Court did find that at least you know 
implied consent for breathalyzers was fine. They cast a lot of doubt on the practice, and, and, and that's something that we've seen as a trend in the court because of technology and technological advancements. It's now much easier to get a warrant. In fact, many jurisdictions have adopted what they call uh, install warrants, where a police officer can file an application for a warrant from his or her cell phone or from you know a computer in a squad car, and a judge on duty can review it and get it back uh, within minutes in some cases. And that's led the Supreme Court to say in many cases, well, why can't you just get a warrant here? And I think that's really where the, the blood draw argument fell apart. That's something the Supreme Court has been working towards for a while. We actually had a case from the 1970s, and, and people are often amazed to hear this, but this case called Schmerber, the Supreme Court said that the police could take a blood draw, essentially take you to the hospital, stick a needle in your arm, and test your blood without a warrant and without your consent, uh, if they had probable cause. A lot of people think, well, how is that possible? The theory is that sometimes we are allowed to get around the warrant requirements if uh, it would take too much time and if the evidence would disappear. We call it an exigency. So the theory being that the blood, the alcohol is dissipating from your blood. We need to get it quickly. A warrant might take too much time. Of course, since the 70s, the warrant process has gotten so much faster. But even two years ago, the court upheld this in a case called Missouri v. McNeely, saying, you know, we're really suspicious about this, but we're still giving law enforcement some uh, deference on this issue. But with the oral argument in this case, I think the Supreme Court really hammered on the lawyers that tried to suggest that getting a warrant takes much time. And they said, you know, how much time are we talking about? And the lawyers said, even in remote areas of the country, it could pretty reliably be done within an hour or so. And in many places in the country, it really takes minutes. So this is a great example of how technological advancements change the way we think about Fourth, Fourth Amendment law. But in this case, um, from your reading of it, there wasn't much need for any technological advancement <laughs> to uh, have probable cause to uh, want to either apply a breathalyzer or draw blood from these individuals. Uh, can you talk about a few of the circumstances uh, that raised your eyebrows on this case? Sure. Well, each of these defendants were visibly smashed. I mean, there, there was really no doubt. And this, again, kind of harkens back to one of the first things we talked about is some of these rules, the criminal will go free. All three of the men who ended up having their cases all go before the Supreme Court. There were different circumstances, but there was really no doubt that, that each one of them was well over the legal limit. Uh, one of them was arrested uh, or you know, the, the officer was clued in when he drove into a ditch and then tried to drive out of the ditch, was swerving over the road. Uh, another one, when the police officer you know, pulled him over, uh, he had a, an empty wine glass sitting in, in his cup holder in the, uh, and also smelled like alcohol. And then the third one is probably the most interesting, maybe a cautionary tale or uh, maybe too late for those of you, you know, listening in after the weekend. Hopefully you didn't do this. But, uh, well, the boating season goes on for much longer <laughs> than the 4th of July weekend. Sure. So this is a, a boating case uh, where they went from sea to land, which is where our story develops. Uh, three men pulled into a boat ramp dock, and according to witnesses, you know, one of them got out and got in his truck and went to back up and pulled the boat out. And all three men, according to witnesses, were visibly intoxicated, which makes this even stranger is that the driver was apparently in his underwear and nothing else. So this uh, seems suspicious, and people called the police. 
By the time the police arrived, the truck was in the water. So they had, in trying to pull the boat out, they had submerged their vehicle. And the, the man who, uh, I'm not sure if he was still in his underwear at this point, uh, the, the man who was alleged to be the driver told police, I wasn't driving the car, but was still holding the keys in his hand as he protested. So, you know, we're not dealing with innocent parties, or at least there was very strong evidence apart from the test that uh, some drinking uh, had occurred. Before we move on, I do want to say that even though we're making light of this, DUIs, people driving under the influence, cause a significant number of accidents, cause a significant amount of death. And I think that was a, a major factor in the court's ruling here. In fact, Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion here, Uh, The very first sentence in his opinion is, drunk drivers take a grisly toll on the nation's roads. So even though we're making light a bit about the circumstances in which these uh, these men were arrested, it it certainly is a serious issue and and one we should all be careful about. And as we move along um, uh, for some of these other cases, uh, we have another cautionary tale, this one being about uh, the upcoming election season, um, especially to anyone who may be a a government employee of any sort. And this is Heffernam v. the city of Patterson. This is another interesting case, um, a uh, missed opportunities case, I mm-hmm. believe. So this is a First Amendment case, a freedom of speech case, but with an interesting twist. Uh, Heffernam was a police officer for the city. In the city, the police officer's police department was under the jurisdiction of the mayor. Now, the mayor was up for re-election and was facing a contested uh, election. And this police officer was spotted picking up a campaign sign for his boss's opponent, for the the person running against the incumbent mayor. And so people saw the police officer picking up this sign, campaign sign, and they fired the police officer. Said, okay, you're disloyal. You're out of here. Well, that is very likely uh, a First Amendment violation. The the police officer has freedom of speech uh, on his own time. Uh, advocating for you know someone other than his current boss to fill that you know public position is is something he's entitled to do. Well, and I'd also say that political speech is one of the most highly protected speeches um, under the First Amendment as well. Is that true? Absolutely. This is exactly the sort of speech that the First Amendment is supposed to protect. We want even people who work for the government to be able to criticize the government and advocate for other governmental leaders, even if they're different than the one they serve. Of course, practically speaking, it's a a dangerous thing to do to be caught rooting for someone to replace your boss and this police officer found that out firsthand i wonder if we could also put in a disclaimer <laughs> for first amendment rights um as exercised by those outside of uh, public employment um <laughs> that discrepancy whereas uh these mainly protect uh civil servants and others oh, yeah. like that um sure you know. if you work for a private company you do not have first amendment rights against your boss and, and certainly advocating for someone else to take your boss's job could lead you to be fired uh without any any legal recourse. But as a police officer, as a public official and working for a public official, this was pretty clearly within the police officer's rights. The interesting twist to this case is that the police officer was actually not supporting uh, the uh, opposition candidate. He was picking up the campaign sign for his his infirm mother, who was bedridden and unable to do it. So she had asked him to go down and pick it up, and he had no intention of campaigning or supporting uh, his boss's adversary. They just got it wrong. They assumed that he was exercising political speech when, in fact, he was just doing a favor for his mom. So the interesting question before the Supreme Court is, do you have First Amendment rights if someone thinks you're exercising political speech, but in fact you're not? 
And the Supreme Court found that he was protected, even though the people infringing on his constitutional rights were wrong about him exercising those rights. Well, and of course, uh, this goes to say that there were courts, uh, courts of appeal lower down um, the judiciary that uh, said, uh, no, in fact, if mm-hmm. he wasn't exercising um, freedom of speech, uh, then they were not in the wrong for firing him <laughs> right. because of, of, of that infraction. It's an interesting thought puzzle. I mean, you can be fired for really any reason and no reason in most forms of, of employment. Uh, there are just certain things you can't be fired for. So you can't be fired for political speech. And some of the lower courts said, well, he wasn't engaging in political speech. They thought he was, but he wasn't. So what really matters? Is it the motive of the person uh, taking the action or is it the actual fact of what's occurring? And the Supreme Court said uh, the motive is important. The motive is enough. Well, uh, I've enjoyed being here with you today, Dan. So if you don't have any further questions for me, I guess I'll be done. Um, One question. Justice Clarence Thomas, what are you doing here? Now, of course, what we're referring to is another anomaly of this most recent um, term of the U.S. Supreme Court in the fact that uh, one of the justices, Justice Thomas, as you just uh, um, announced, uh, spoke for the first time in, uh, I've, I've heard, between seven and ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was the, probably one of the most interesting things that happened the Supreme Court uh, term to, to many lawyers, even though it had nothing to do with any of the cases. Uh, in this case called uh, Voisine versus the United States, and we'll talk in a minute maybe about the, the merits of the case, but uh, the, uh, one of the lawyers had gone up and given her argument and finished early. And uh, it was a, what we call a cold bench. The justices didn't have a lot of questions, and she was ready to sit down and said, okay, well, if there's no further questions, I'll sit down. And all of a sudden, we hear Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas said, well, I, I have a question. First time he has spoken from the bench in 10 years. Uh, gasps rippled through the courtroom. It was, it was very unusual. And uh, then he went on to question her for uh, quite a few uh, minutes, for, you know, for about 8 to 10 minutes. So very unusual, and a lot of people, you know, we like to speculate. The Supreme Court is kind of like a nerdy soap opera for legal scholars. So what, you know, what, why did he break his silence after 10 years? And, and some speculation is that he uh, felt he was filling a role abandoned by Justice Scalia. This was a case involving firearms. It, was, uh, it involved a state law that said uh, people convicted of domestic violence offenses uh, lose their right to possess a firearm even if that domestic violence offense is a misdemeanor. And uh, this is probably something that Justice Scalia would have looked upon very skeptically. He was a, a gun rights advocate. He, he supported a very you know, kind of strict, expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment. And there's speculation that uh, Justice Thomas was filling a void uh, left by his departed friend. All right. And now, um, I guess since we've introduced that case and talked a, bit, a little bit about the peculiarities, mm-hmm. uh, how did that case end up? Uh, this was really, again, not a close case. It ended up being a 6-2 case uh, supporting the premise that a person could lose their right to possess a firearm, so upholding this law. And even though Justice Thomas was asking mostly questions about the constitutional implications of this, it wasn't really a constitutional question that had been presented to the court. And the court did not see this as very controversial, that if you're convicted of a domestic violence offense, you know, at least in this state, that you could uh, you could lose your right to a firearm, but 
what Justice Thomas's questions evoke is really, uh, you know, a a larger debate about the Second Amendment that, of course, will not be going away. Uh, what he said is that this is a case where someone convicted of a misdemeanor, uh, even a misdemeanor that, that could have a negligence component, not even necessarily intentional conduct. There was a recklessness standard uh, here, could lose what we normally think of as a constitutional right. And he asked this lawyer, are there any other cases where this has happened? Uh, and the lawyer seemed to do a, a fairly good job of responding, particularly for a question that she didn't expect to be asked, and certainly not by, you know, by Justice Thomas. Uh, there are a few other cases where that happens, but it's very, very rare. So there, there is a bit of a point to that, that with a misdemeanor offense, you might lose a constitutional right. That certainly didn't seem appropriate to Justice Thomas. But a broad majority of the Supreme Court uh, upheld that law. All right. And so that concludes um, our look at uh, many of the cases and the decisions that made up this last term. And I, I speak in error there because, of course, uh, you like to remind me, they look at, you know, between you know, 80 and upwards mm-hmm. uh, cases, you know, each term. And, you know, only uh, a few, a select few make it to Georgia College Connections. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, we've we really cherry-picked cases to find ones that were the most controversial, have features of interest, and also could be explained to, you know, a general audience. Of course, many of these cases involve hyper-technical issues of patent law or the securities laws which lawyers in those fields are very interested in. But we tend to focus on the more expansive social issues, constitutional issues. And I should put in a plug now that coming up in September, Georgia College will celebrate Constitution Week, uh, September 16th. And then the following week through September 23rd, we will have a number of events here on campus talking about constitutional rights, uh, our legal responsibilities, being uh, effective uh, and uh, and conscientious citizens. And as part of that, I do a Supreme Court review where I will invite in a bunch of lawyers from different backgrounds to dive a little deeper into each of these cases. All right. And as we get closer to September, I hope we'll be talking here on Georgia College Connections about Constitution Week. I hope so, too. Well, Matt, thank you very much for coming back and uh, gracing us with uh, your insights into the Supreme Court. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Dan. Ah, The pleasure is all mine, and I hope it has been for our listeners as well. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we are talking about the October 2015 term of the United States Supreme Court. My guest in the studio was Matt Ressing. He is a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business here at Georgia College. Thank you for spending a portion of your evening with us on Georgia College Connections. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. I look forward to convening with you next time.